Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, through chapter 20, verse 16. You can find this on page 12 of your uh, worship folder. And uh, we're, we're sort of diving in the middle of a chapter here, you know, walking in the middle of a movie kind of thing. Um, and, and so before I read our text, I want to give a little context so you'll kind of know what we're reading. Uh, in chapter 19, uh, we find the passage that is often referred to as the passage uh, of the, uh, the story of the rich young ruler, um, the man who, who came up to Jesus asking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, to which Jesus responds, you want to earn your way to God, keep all the commandments, be perfect. The man then responds by saying, yeah, I've knocked this out of the park, um, done that since my youth. Jesus then tells him, well, then, there's one thing that you, you lack. Go, sell everything, follow me. And the man walks away sad. And then Jesus makes the statement, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom. Disciples ask, who can be saved? Jesus responds, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Which then brings us to the passage we're going to read for today. So Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through chapter 20, verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first." For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And and, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired uh, first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day. In the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. 
I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. A couple weeks back, I had the privilege uh, of attending a, a week-long class up at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, um, which was sort of a surreal experience. Um, it's been over a decade since I was a, a seminary student, um, and, and so I'd kind of forgotten what the, the, like the classroom dynamic was, was like, um, but I quickly remembered that you know, more often than not, as you looked around the classroom at your fellow students, typically there's going to be at least one person in the class who's a bit of a go-getter. Um, you know, they, they want to stand out, want to, want to show off to everybody, hey, I know I, I belong here, know what I'm talking about, uh, really want to engage with the professor. And so you can count on the fact that, that if there's a question that needs to be asked, a question that, that's, that's on everybody else's mind as well, this person's going to ask it, which you, which you kind of have to appreciate, right? Because I mean, that means you don't have to. Um, you can just trust that this person will take care of that, that for you. As we read the Gospels, we find one of Jesus' students. Um, the word disciple simply means student. Um, is the exact same way. Of course, I'm talking about Peter. And Peter, though often impulsive and unwise, he's the guy that says what we're all thinking. So we don't have to. Um, and so upon hearing Jesus tell the rich young ruler to leave everything and follow him, Peter essentially says this, we've actually done what that guy wouldn't do. We left everything to follow you. What do we get? What's in it for us? And so what I want us to do today is to look at Jesus' response to this question, which essentially gets into the subject of work, of, of, of labor, of calling, of, of vocation, um, our nine-to-five kind of thing, but, but also the broader question of our, our efforts in general as Christians. The title of today's sermon is, How Should We View our works. And what I want to explore is at least three aspects of Jesus' response to Peter. Three aspects that, that are tremendously important as we consider our own labors, our own work. And these will serve as our, our three points for the day. First, I want us to look at, at the call to work. Second, I want to look at, at the benefit of work. And lastly, I want to look at the danger of work. So the call to work, benefit of work, danger of work. First of all, the call to work. Verse 1, chapter 20, Jesus introduces the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. The, the master of the house calls people to serve in his vineyard. And in the parable, the master of the house, of course, represents, represents God. And the vineyard represents God's kingdom. And the workers, they represent the, the ones who God has called to work in the kingdom. Now, it's probably wise for us, good Protestants, good Reformed, good Presbyterian folk, to, to make certain we're clear on something at the very front end of this. Because one of the emphases, emphases of, of our tradition, 
something that we you know, believe jumps off the pages of Scripture, is that our right standing before God, our salvation, is by grace alone. Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, classic passage. By grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Not by works, not by our actions, not by our efforts, not by what we do. Our performance does not in any way, shape, or form merit acceptance before God. We can only be accepted by the finished work of Christ alone, received by faith alone. But having said that, if you continue reading chapter 2 of Ephesians, by grace alone, by, by, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own works, lest anyone should boast, keep reading to verse 10, it reads the following, this way, it reads the following way. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. While we are not saved by our works, we, our works don't earn us anything, the text says that we're created for good works. And this language of, of being created for good works actually echoes back to Genesis chapter 2, where God created people and placed them in paradise and called them to, to work creation, to cultivate it, to, to protect it. And to be clear, this call to, to work took place before Genesis chapter 3, which means that it's, it's pre-fall, it's before sin enters into the world, which means that, that work, you know, intrinsically, is good. It's the way supposed, the world was supposed to be. And while work looks differently in a fallen world, as a result of sin, it's part of God's good creation for people to work. It's what he made human beings to do. It's why in the parable, every time the landowner encounters individuals being idle, he calls them to work. He, 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 people are made to work. He, he says, you're idle, go, go work in my vineyard. There's value in working. There's dignity in it. And the work that human beings were designed to do initially was work that would be in service to our maker. And so what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 is that the gospel is restoring us to our original purpose. Grace doesn't mean that there's no effort in life. What grace means is that we're now enabled to work with a different vantage point, from a different perspective, with a different empowerment. But work's part of the deal. One theologian put it this way, too often salvation is thought to be an alternative to obedience rather than the way to obedience. We're saved to work, to serve. And we're saved to serve not our own little kingdoms that we've set up for ourselves. We're saved so that we would, we would serve Christ and, and his kingdom. Now, in the passage that we just read, Peter is referencing the, the, the original call. You know, back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus approaches them. I'll make you fishers of men. Drop your, drop your nets. Come follow me. It's the call to the rich young ruler. Leave everything. Follow me. But, but lest we think that, that this notion of, of sacrifice only applies to Peter and the disciples or the you know, rich young ruler, elsewhere Jesus puts it this way. If anyone, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow 
me. This call that Jesus made back then in Scripture, you know, while those were specific to those individuals, in many ways the call that Jesus makes to anyone is the same. Jesus calls people to, to embrace the cross, the cross being an instrument of, of death. The way of Jesus is a way of, of self-sacrifice, of laying down one's own life in service to a greater kingdom. That's not just the, the supersized version of Christianity for clergy or for the monks or the nuns or the, you know, the missionaries, you know, for those with nothing better to do. It's the call for anyone who would follow Jesus. Now, if you're like me, I hear that statement, okay, deny myself, take up the cross and follow me. And I sort of want to, like, okay, let's tease that out a bit. Because I get the how in that. How are we supposed to live? Lives of self-sacrifice, okay? That's, that's hard enough. But, but the question, where? Where do we do that, okay? We're supposed to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus where? Where are you called to do that? In, in what context? Where does this self-sacrifice for Christ's kingdom happen? You know, must you, must you move to another continent to do that? Go dig wells in Africa. That's, where, that, that's, the, that's the place i got to go serve. Must you change your profession? Lots of people end up in the ministry because they're like, I've got to serve, I'm supposed to serve Jesus, and I guess I need to do that by being a pastor or church worker of some sort. Must you, you know, embrace poverty? I mean, I'm going to, Jesus didn't have a home, so I'm going to not have a house, not have a car. You know, must, must you alter your life circumstances drastically in order to follow Jesus? Perhaps. In some sense, the answer to that is yes. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's a fascinating passage. Fascinating passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, lots of stuff in there, okay? Um, marriage and singleness and sex and engagement and all that kind of stuff in light of Jesus. It's fascinating. And so, because what you had were a bunch of people saying, I want to follow Jesus, and he's coming back soon. So what I need to do is I need to leave my spouse, because this, this person over here is really weighing me down, and I want to serve Jesus. I can only serve Jesus this way. Or I can only serve Jesus in this context, so I'm not going to get married. Or i got to get married because I, that's the only way I can serve Jesus. And so Paul is, is going to try to interact with this, and he rejects this type of thinking completely. The notion that I, I have to change my circumstances to do something worthwhile for the kingdom, I cannot serve God in this particular circumstance or this particular place, Paul's saying it's just not true. We're called to, to labor, we're called to work, we're called to serve, wherever you are. Because here's the reality, if everybody moves from Germantown to Africa... There's nobody in Germantown, um, or at least not any Christians, um, if all the Christians go, that wherever you are, we, we believe in sovereignty enough to say that's, that's where God has you in this moment. That's, we see Paul also saying that can change. You can even seek for it to change. But the question is, what responsibilities do you have right now? Where are you located? 
What are your passions? What are your gifts? What are the opportunities being put before you? What are the circumstances of of your life? That's where you're called to follow Jesus in service of his kingdom. Again, that can change over time. Paul gives the option for us to even be involved in that change. But what he rejects is this notion that I must change and fit into this mold in order to serve Jesus. Which means that service to Christ's kingdom doesn't just take place inside the four walls of the institutional church. And I say this as someone very dependent upon volunteers, um, particularly this past weekend, uh, or this past week, with VBS. Um, We are called to use our gifts within the body of Christ, absolutely. But the thought that I only can do that, that's where the, the only activity takes place, I don't think we see that in Scripture. We need people who are going to be called to vocational ministry. We need you to use your gifts here. But don't think for a moment that this is the only place where God uses his people and that everything else is just like secondary. You're just earning money to come and pay the church, and that's where the only thing that really matters happens. I don't, the church is extremely important in forming us and shaping us and providing us a, a community to do life with and, and to praise Jesus absolutely on all that we need it desperately. It's vital. But God also sends us out to go use our gifts. Here's the point. All of us are called to work, to serve, to serve Christ's kingdom wherever you are. And the vineyard is, is, is the world in which we are placed. What this then means is that your work matters. How many of you go to work? For those of you, you know, kind of with the, doing the eight to five thing or whatever right now, I mean, you go to work and you sort of go, what is, what's the point? What am I really doing here? This feeling of sort of meaninglessness with it all. I mean, for, and, and some of you are like, I'm not even working right now, so I mean, what, what do I even do with this topic? All of us, again, have been placed with circumstances, with the word, I mean, vocation, Latin for calling. We have callings that you're placed in, whether you're a parent or grandparent, retired, not retired, not student, whatever. There are opportunities for you to use your gifts, to use your labor, to use your creativity for the good of your neighbor and for the glory of your king. Do we view work that way? I dare say we don't. And what this provides, this, this sort of reimagining what our work could be, what it provides is an opportunity to infuse our work with meaning. And that's not artificially infused. I mean, that's, that's what's really there. Our work does have meaning. Our work, and that's, I mean, vocation. You're a church member. You're a parent. You're a student. You're whatever when we see those as callings particular to us at a time and a place in service to a greater kingdom, then our lives can be infused with meaning because God has placed us there to work. We can also see our lives producing something as well. It's going to bring us to our second point for the day, the benefit of work. Peter asked the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? I half expect Jesus to sort of look around and kind of do the, you know, a couple of chapters back, he did the, you know, get behind me Satan business. You're kind of half waiting for that, right? I mean, how dare you, Peter, think about your, your being so selfish, 
How could, they, how could you consider the benefits? You're supposed to do it because I said so. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is not scared to discuss the fact that there are benefits. That, dare I say, rewards for following him, for serving him. Look, Matthew uh, chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus states it plainly. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who will follow me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Jesus highlights the fact that for the 12, there's a unique place of honor for them in light of their service. He even expands this to include anyone, anyone who would follow, anyone who would experience loss for the sake of the kingdom will receive a hundredfold in eternal life. Now, in the parable, at the conclusion, I mean, we see the, the, the landowner, he promises to do what? He promises to give them a denarius, a generous wage for a day's labor. Now, again, I want to restate this just so hear me right. We don't earn our salvation. Christ earned salvation for us. But that's not to say that we don't look forward to rewards, that there aren't benefits for our love and devotion to Jesus. And Scripture is clear that that we should long for that. We should long for the day when we see Jesus. We should long for the day when, when, when all things are made right, when every tear should be wiped away. We should long for the day when, when our labors for the kingdom in this life are, are, are brought to a conclusion. But in the meantime, as we wait, it's not wrong to have that reward in mind. A reward that that sort of gives our day-to-day now perspective that that it's not always going to to be this way, to to borrow from the old folk song, to to, to keep our eye on the prize. I mean, Paul says as much, Philippians chapter 3, I strain forward for what lies ahead. I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into his glorious body. There's a longing there for future blessings that is appropriate. But the rewards, the blessing, the benefits of being part of God's people, of serving his kingdom, you know, while, yes, look forward to that final day. That's not to say that we have no experience of blessing now as well. Verse 28, Jesus describes this phenomenon, is in the, the new world. The new world, these things are going to happen. But here's the thing. This new world, this kingdom, while it's not here in its fullest sense, There's an already not yet component to this. This kingdom has been inaugurated. This kingdom is broken into the world now. Jesus is on his throne at this very moment, and Jesus does give good gifts to his people in the meantime. He even uses our labor as one of the means to give good gifts to his people. Let's carry out the vineyard illustration further, shall we? Through those, with their efforts in the vineyard, we get to live in a world with wine. 
And a world with wine is better than a world without wine. Can we all agree on that? Um, And those who make wine get to enjoy the fruit of their labor. No pun intended. Um, And those who didn't labor for it get to enjoy those fruits as well. What do you think about this for a moment? In a few minutes, we're going to receive the sacrament. We're going to receive communion. We're going to take the physical elements of bread and wine that in the sacrament will be for us, spiritually speaking, the body and blood of Jesus received by faith, through which we will commune with our risen Savior. Did any of us press the grapes for that? Did any of us make the bread here? Some churches would say yes to that, and it would totally spoil my illustration and whatever. But disregard that. Um, We didn't. Someone else did that. The car that you drove to worship this morning, you did not make that. The paper that your bulletin is printed on, you didn't make that. You're utilizing in this moment the resources that somebody else produced for you to be doing what you're doing in your worship of Jesus. And the people who did that, they had no idea they were doing it. No idea that they impacted you this morning. In the same way that you have no idea the way that you impact other people for their good. But you did. Without even realizing it, you did. Sometimes we get to see the impact that we, we make with our labors. Most of the time we don't. But either way, the world is a better place... Because people use their gifts and talents and labors that God gave them. And all the more as believers use their creativity and generosity and excellence in ultimate service to King Jesus. In other words, we don't have to wait for the benefit later. You live in a world right now with benefits all over the place. Even now, again, pales in comparison to what we will one day experience but still good gifts. And so Jesus has essentially answered the question here. What will we get? You're going to get stuff. Eternal life, a hundredfold. What you lost. Even a throne for the twelve. Questions answered. But Jesus doesn't end there. He doesn't end his discussion of this topic there. Instead, he throws something else in, which brings us to our last point for the day. The danger of work. And to be clear, the problem really isn't with work. You know, work was created to be good. The problem more so is what we do with our work. And so Jesus goes further to essentially rein in an inevitable misapplication of what he just said for Peter. And really for any human heart in its broken state. So on the front of the parable, and at the conclusion as well, it's kind of, you know, kind of sandwiched, uh, sandwiched in there. Jesus communicates sort of a cryptic statement. He he says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. In other words, yes, Peter, you're going to receive blessing, whether it's in this life or the life to come, but that blessing that you so crave, it may not look the way you're thinking. And so Jesus tells the parable. Vineyard owner goes out in the morning. He hires workers to work all day with the promise of a denarius. Then he goes out again, third hour. Calls workers into the vineyard. Tells them he'll give them what's right. And he goes out sixth hour, ninth hour, 
Finally, at the end of the day, one hour left, 11th hour, hires the last group of workers. Now it's time for payment. And for the purpose of this parable, the last workers get to see the I mean, sorry, the, the, the first workers, the ones who've worked all day, get to witness, get to see what the guys brought in at the very end are making. And everybody's getting paid the same thing, the same thing that was promised to them. And so the first workers start to think, well, you know what? Maybe he's going to give us a little bit more. Maybe we're going to get more after all, because we've been working really hard. And it comes to their, their turn, and they get the exact same thing. It infuriates them. Got to be clear. The landowner didn't rip them off, okay? He paid them a fair salary, more than fair, based on what was agreed upon. And the fact that he overpaid others, I mean, that he was generous with other people, it's irrelevant. But they still weren't happy. I actually have an experience with something similar. Um, years ago, Early in my days of being a student ministry, I, I put together a trip, free trip, free trip for any student who would memorize a good chunk of the shorter catechism. Okay, free whitewater rafting trip. I had several sign up to participate. Yes, I want to do that. I want to go on this trip. But not quite as many as I would have hoped or quite as many as I financially committed ourselves to. Um, this was way back, back when I couldn't manage a budget. Um, now, I'm, I'm, I'm gold, I'm good. Um, and so I got into a bit of an awkward spot. Uh, needed some, something, some way to come up with the resources so I could get all those costs covered that I assumed I was going to get. And so I, I, I made a plan. I was going to give a free trip to those who had done what they said they were going to do. They memorized the material. They, you know, I'm honoring what they did. Free trip. But I also was going to allow for those who simply wanted to go and pay their way to, to, to go ahead and write a check. And so I met with the students. They'd done the work. And I opened up the scripture to Matthew chapter 20, passage we just read. I read the parable, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, and told them how this was going to shake out. Let's just say they didn't find the biblical rationale compelling. Um, it, it, they looked at the fury in their eyes um, after a summer's worth of, of, of hard labor to do this, and all of a sudden other people are getting to go, they don't have to do anything. They didn't see the point, but I felt their fury, and I, and I was like, this is illustrating pretty well kind of the fury that these first workers are experiencing, because what was exposed in that moment, believe it or not, they really didn't care all that much about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, saddens me to say. Um, but they just wanted to go on a whitewater rafting trip. And for others to get to do that without putting forth the same type of effort, in their view, was wrong. Perhaps it was. Because one of the reasons that Jesus tells this parable is to force the disciples to ask themselves a question. Why am I really doing what I'm doing? Why, do I do, why are you doing this? 
Jesus is doing this to unmask the motivations behind following him, behind serving in his kingdom. Because if your efforts are simply for the reward, then there's something missing here. And what's missing is the love that we're to have for the God who calls us, redeems us, rescues us, and wants to to be with us. I mean, in every other kingdom, you do more, you get more. You work harder, you work longer. If your work has greater value, greater importance, you should receive more. But in this kingdom, it doesn't. It looks different. Because in God's economy, everybody gets the same reward because God is a God who, out of the abundance of his grace, gives the same reward. He gives the greatest gift of all, the gift of himself, the gift of Christ's righteousness, which is perfect. You get eternal life with him as a restored people living in a restored creation. Jesus is unmasking motives here. What's really driving you, Peter? Same question for us. What's really driving us in our following of Jesus? But Jesus also wants to see, wants them to see the fact that the only reason that you're laboring right now is because I called you. See, in the parable, all the workers are on the sidelines. They're waiting. They're waiting for somebody to approach them. Why are you not working? No one's called us. Why are you there without meaning or purpose? And then they are brought into the vineyard, and then they receive blessing. And were it not for the master of the house pursuing them, that's exactly where they still would be. Same is true for us as well. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, it means that God has called you. He's brought you into his kingdom. He's brought you into his family. He gave you the righteousness of his son. He gave you meaning and purpose that you didn't have before. He gave you the empowerment to serve him by his spirit. And had he not, we'd still be on the sidelines. The only reason that we are in the vineyard serving is because of his grace. And Jesus tells this parable so that we might understand our work differently because he knows us so well. He knows that the farther and farther away we get from, say, an initial experience of grace or maybe just some profound experience of grace, the more prone we can offer tend to forget, the more prone we can be to to tend to forget that our very presence in the kingdom is grace. And when we forget that, we can subtly come to believe that grace gets us in the door and then we keep ourselves in by our working, by our efforts, by our labors. We can begin to think that we're earning something. We can even start comparing ourselves to, to others over and against other people who for whatever reason aren't really doing it the way I'm doing it. Jesus knows that we can forget that the only reason we have the capability to do what we can do is grace. And in the realm of of, of God's kingdom, where God's spirit is empowering us to greater ends than we would be capable capable of otherwise, 
all of it's grace. That the, that the totality of our lives is grace. And Jesus shows us this not, to, not so we can beat ourselves up, not so that we can feel condemned. He shows us this to remind us of who we are. People who have been brought into his people by grace, called to serve him, dependent upon his grace, and experience blessing that comes from his grace. May we believe that. May we be reminded of that again and again and again. May we live lives in light of the grace that we've received. Let me pray for us. Father, you have given meaning and purpose to our lives, and you've done so by your your grace. Help us, Lord, to see all of our lives as an avenue to serve you. And Father, rescue us from idols of self-sufficiency that would lead us to think, we got this now. We're good. And the inevitable self-righteousness that comes from that. Keep us humble. Keep us dependent. Keep us looking to Jesus. All in Christ's name. Amen.